1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Well, I just want to say thanks so much uh, again, King's Cross, for having me back here. Uh, it's uh, it's an honor to really serve in this kind of capacity. And so before we really dive into our passage a bit more, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this season, that it's a time where we get to uh, celebrate you. And in all the places where things are moving quickly, would you slow us down so we can really grasp exactly what it is that you're doing in this season for each one of us in our hearts? Um, Lord, would you be the one that speaks first today? Would you get me out of the way? Would you be the one who speaks and rest well in the souls of everybody here? So, Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do today. Uh, we love you, and uh, in your name, amen. Um, so, like many of you guys, I, I mean, I love the Christmas season because there's a lot of traditions that are involved. And in one sense, it's a fun thing that there are so many different traditions that we actually get to celebrate alongside all the other churches that are celebrating across the globe as well, and also in the history of the church too. And so you've got hundreds and thousands of years that are happening of tradition in the church, but also just in our modern day and age, it's just fun to establish different kinds of traditions within our families. And I know that one of those in our modern day is going to be movies. And you've got the classics that are going to be part of everything, like you've got It's a Wonderful Life or A Christmas Story. For some, it's going to be one of the dozens of variations of The Christmas Carol. I grew up on the Muppets version, which is phenomenal. If you haven't watched it, Michael Caine gave a performance of a lifetime. Uh, you've got some more controversial ones like Die Hard. Um, and then you've also got this other subcategory of uh, Christmas rom-coms. Like, you've got uh, While You Were Sleeping is a great one. Love Actually. I've never actually seen it, but like people talk about it all the time. Uh, and you've got The Holiday as well. But in, in, I mean, guys, Jude Law, that guy could have chemistry with a pile of rocks, and I would believe it. I'd be in favor of their relationship, and I'd wish them all the best. Um, but, you know, there's a certain fascination that comes with the Christmas season and love. And believe it or not, this year alone, Hallmark, everybody knows Hallmark, Hallmark is going to be releasing 40 new Christmas rom-coms. Isn't that bonkers? And so, like, even though it's probably not going to be winning any Oscars anytime soon, those 40 rom-coms, they do point to something, that there is this desire for love scenarios within the Christmas uh, season. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that most of the time this love, it's really hollow. Like there's no substance to it. Most of it is just, hey, like I like to hang out with you. You happen to look good and uh, you make me feel good. So like that's, but that's kind of it. And yet there still is this draw because there's a fascination with love that draws us in. We still want it, but it's just not quite enough. But the Bible actually has a lot to say about love, the kind of love that feels safe, that feels secure, and that it actually compels people to be and do things completely against their nature. 
And so let's, let's dive in a bit more into our, our passage today that my lovely wife just read. Um, and as with all things, the best place to start is with God. And so my first point for us today is going to be God is love. So read with me, starting in verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So the thing that sets us apart from all other world religions and philosophies is that at the very apex of our reality, the center of our universe, is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are all in perfect harmony and love with one another. And it is out of an outpouring of that love where beauty ends up being created. That's why it is that food tastes as good as it does. That's why there's beauty everywhere. Because if this is a God that ended up not having any kind of love, like why not just make it utilitarian? Why not just make it functional? No, God desires us to enjoy life so he made things out of the fullness of his love and himself and gave us these amazing gifts. And so does God do loving things? Yes, absolutely. But far more important that is that God is love. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. So that all things that God does is marked by love. But I do want to pause on that for a quick second. Because even though God is love and all that he does is marked by love, that doesn't mean that he's not grieved by pain, by death, by suffering and sorrow. I mean, a a couple weeks ago, Brian preached on uh, Lazarus when Lazarus died. And what we know is that when Lazarus died, Jesus came to where he was, and and Lazarus' sisters came out to meet Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their grief and the grief of their friends, the Bible says that his spirit was moved, and Jesus wept. The Bible says that in the Psalms, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So, In all the places where it's unclear what God is doing in your life, in all the places where you're wondering, God, why are you doing it this way? Or, God, how are you going to do it this way? I just want you to know that God is doing things out of love. And even though he's doing it out of love, it doesn't mean that it's just a matter of distant sympathy when he engages with us in the hard places. Because Jesus came here and he endured life in our humanity with us. And so he suffered like us. And so he too can really empathize because he also suffered in pain, grief, death, and loss. Our our passage in John says to love is to know God. So how do we get to know him? A couple of big ways to get to know God a little bit more is going to be through reading God's Word, reading Scripture in the Bible, and then through prayer. 
The Bible is going to be the primary place that God has revealed himself. It's the primary place where God revealed his redemptive work and the outpouring and showing of his love. There was, there was actually a, a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. He was around in the 20th century. He hands down one of the most prolific theologians, incredibly well-known in the 20th century. And back in the 60s, he was doing a tour in the States, lecturing at different colleges and universities. And while he was at the University of Chicago, he was doing a Q&A session with some students afterwards, and there was a student who ended up asking him, hey, can you summarize your entire life's work in theology in one sentence? which would have been a ridiculous feat for him because he wrote tomes and tomes of books and they were so convoluted and so confusing. I mean, he just needed to hire on an editor to be like, can you rewrite this at least just like a little bit? And, and so for him to be asked this kind of question would have been profound. And his response was, yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so which I think is an amazing reminder that one of these brilliant minds in, of, of theologians in all the things that he has written about can boil it all down to, hey, it is so much more important to recognize that we are loved by Jesus than the Bible tells us. And so the first place to go and learn more about God is going to be in Scripture. Another way to encounter God's love is, is through prayer. And I think that prayer is often one of the most misunderstood places in the churches. Uh, and a mentor of mine years ago, he shared with me a couple of different things that really revolutionized what my prayer life was like. And so I'm, I'm hoping that these are going to be a blessing to you because I thought that prayer, as I showed up, was a test. I thought that I needed to figure out, well, did I read the right books? And am I reading the Bible the right way? And am I, am I doing the right things? And, and I got to the spot where I started praying publicly like all the time and be like, oh, I'm going to impress them with the words that I put together. And see, prayer started to become far more about me than it was about God. And so here are a couple of things about prayer that I'm hoping will be a blessing. And so prayer is this. Prayer is not a place to be good. It is a place to be honest. That means, God, I'm wrestling with you right now. Like, I, I don't fully understand if you're good. Like, I don't, I don't know. We don't hide those things from God. We actually take them to him. That's where prayer starts. Prayer is not a place to perform. It is a place to be present. We don't pray to show how good of Christians we are. We pray because it slows us down and reminds us that God is here and that he is good and that he wants to be with us. Prayer is not a place to be right. It is a place to be known. And so prayer isn't a place to make yourself so rigid to the point where you're just praying the things that you're going through because it's what you ought to pray, and it's like, this sounds like the right kind of thing. That's not the point of prayer. Instead, it's a place to come before the Lord and ask openly, search me, God, and know my heart. He wants to be with you in all things. And then prayer is not a place to prove your worth 
It's a place to receive your worth and offer yourself in truth. When, when I was in seminary, I learned a lot of Christian things to hide myself from God. I learned about compassion and wisdom and theology and church structure and leadership, and I used these things just as vessels to become good at them or to be fully self-sufficient or to boost up my own ego from feeling like I was doing good things or getting compliments and praise from others. But the invitation of the Christian life is to say, I can't do this on my own. I need you, God. And God, in his mercy, his grace, and his love, he does. Bless you. As scripture and prayer are the primary places to encounter God's love, the more that you know God, the more that love is going to abound and the more that it actually starts to change us. So my second point for us here today is God's love transforms us. God's love transforms us. Because if, if we love, we know God. But what does God's love actually look like? How do we know that he loves us? And what is that love? It's a good thing that he tells us. So, so read with me in verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God's love is shown through the sending of his son. I mean, this, this is what we're celebrating here at Christmas, that the second person of the Trinity came to earth as a baby, which can we slow down and think about that for a second? That the creator of all things came to earth in the form of a fragile, fully dependent baby. That the creating force of the universe needed to learn how to walk. The one who hung the stars in the skies needed his butt wiped. the one who breathed very life into us, needed his food mashed up. I mean, how humiliating for a mighty, all-powerful, sovereign God to put on this bag of bones. But why? Because he loves us enough to come to earth and share in our humanity so he could rescue us and reconcile us to himself. And so the first way that God's love transforms us is by transforming our position. He transforms our position before him. Our passage actually says that we were loved in spite of the fact that we didn't love him. And yet he still came to atone for our sins. See, God's love, it's not characterized by our love for him, but for his love for us while we were sinners, while we were actually his enemies. Read with me real quick from Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So God's love is made manifest in the self-giving, self-sacrificing, pain-enduring, and wrath-taking death of his son on the cross because he loves you. Because he loves you. He desires you. He enjoys you. My wife's family has this saying that they share with one another. It's not just cute. They mean it where they say, I love you and I like you. Have you ever thought that God actually likes you too? Like, you think he's just going to invite you into his family or open the doors to the kingdom just begrudgingly, like, I guess I'll let these ones in? No, like, he enjoys you. He wants you to enjoy all of his mighty, powerful, loving goodness as he is the king of kings. He enjoys you. And so the first way that his love is transformational is by changing our position. And our position is fundamentally transformed by his love when he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. We've been made into something entirely new in him. Our assurance of grace actually pointed to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So, So what does this mean? Those things that you hate about you, those past seasons that cause your gut to churn when you think about them, or those sins that you're still struggling with, or those narratives that say you won't amount to anything or be worth anything, all of that has been put to death on the cross. They have no footholds anymore. They've been dealt with because, frankly, you couldn't deal with them. But Christ did through his life, death, and resurrection. We've been reconciled to him while we were weak, while we were his enemies, and while we were sinners. See, God's love isn't about you being good enough to deserve his love. It's about his love despite our brokenness, where he changes our posture from sinners to sons and daughters, where he changes us from enemies to heirs, from death to life. So with this kind of position transformation, we also see that our affections start to be transformed as well. Verse 9 says that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And now, while he has saved us and given us life on a cosmic scale, that doesn't mean it just exists outside of what we're existing here in. See, God desires life for us, and he died so that we can live through him. And this is why all other gods fall short. Money is not going to give you life. If anything, it's just going to put more gray hairs on your head. Your relationships, your spouse, your kids, they're going to disappoint you. They're they're a great source of joy, but they're going to disappoint you. Your career, I mean, amazing if you're in a career that uses all your gifts and talents, 
but your career is not going to be the thing that gives you life. Food, pleasure, experiences, cool things, position, success, power, they're all good things. But if they become an end to themselves, they make terrible gods and terrible objects of affection. But when we have life through Christ, we get to see all of these things as expressions of love. We see them through this lens of a gift versus the things to just be pursued in and of themselves. So God is transforming our affections away from the things of this world that are bound to disappoint, the things that are going to expire, the things that always run out, and unto himself who actually gives life so that we're no longer burdened to find places that have to give us life that have no ability to give us life at all. So God's love first transforms our position, and then it also transforms our affections away from the hollow things of this world unto life that's found in him. And one of the things that we also see is that God's love transforms our posture. There's another implicit transformational factor that takes place here in our passage. Earlier we read that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And those who don't love don't know God. So there's a correlation that John is pointing to here in how God's love also changes our posture to be one that's characterized by love. So love actually, in a way, it serves as sort of like a a check engine light for the soul by recognizing a couple of things in ourselves. Here's, Here's what I mean by that. You have anger in your heart. You find anger as being a quick response? Do you hold bitterness and resentment there? Do you find yourself looking for reasons to discredit, disregard, or invalidate others in their shortcomings? What I want to lovingly put before you is that maybe your gaze of the beauty and love that God has extended to you has drifted. Because the reality is, there was not a place where you deserve the kind of love, grace, and patience that the Lord extended to you. And so if you end up sensing that when you see anger flare up, when someone hurts you and just can't let it go, or if you think of someone on the other end of the belief aisle as you, maybe think of politics or some social matters, and you just think, I can never get on board with that person if they believe that. I'd encourage you to spend some time this week fixing your gaze on Christ, fixing your gaze on the kind of love that God extended to you while being his enemy, while you were weak, while you were a sinner, and yet he still extended love, grace, kindness, and patience to the point of his own death. See, the majesty and beauty of God's love for you should take away any angry, resentment, fault-harboring bullets out of your gun because you didn't deserve that kind of love and grace that he extended to you. Here's here's one of the other ways. Um, Anybody here ever experienced a relationship that scares you? A parent, a spouse, a child? Parents, I know that tantrums are in a different category, but nonetheless applicable. A boss, maybe. 
a friend? Anybody here know what it's like to live in fear of someone's reaction to you doing something wrong? And then there's this sense of, well, I better make sure that I'm doing all the right things, better make sure that I'm uh, cleaning everything up well, better make sure that they don't know about this, better make sure that I watch my tone and what I say so they don't blow up at me. And so these are all behaviors that come from a place of fear. You're changing why and how you do things because you're afraid. And so that's one of these other check engine lights here is is fear. Anybody ever feel this way about their relationship with with God? He's just looking down on you, just shaking his head, being like, oh, you have no idea what you got in store. Your sin just tipped that scale. You got something coming for you and you have no idea. So you try to do that thing where you try to make yourself all nice and shiny and put the dust under the rug and put your Christian resume before God and hope that you've done enough to avoid punishment. I want you to to read this verse with me. It's just a couple verses later from our primary passage. Verse 18 says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. See, fear is the anticipation of pain, and fear robs us from the delight and joy and security in any kind of relationship. Let alone in God's love, there's no place for fear because all punishment that we deserve was actually put to death on the cross. Christ took care of those things, which frees us up to admit that there's nothing present but love in our relationship with the Lord. He's already taken care of our sins, so there's nothing to be afraid of. Fear has no place because all things to be afraid of have been put to death already. So we then get to change our posture from a posture of being motivated by fear to our posture of behaviors that are being motivated by love. A few weeks ago, Oscar, when he was introducing us into the Advent season, he talked about this mentality that we shared with the Jews back in the first century when they were waiting for the Messiah. And that phrase and mentality is, the king is coming, get ready. When you guys think of get ready, does it look like covering things up? Does it look like throwing that dust under the rug? and hoping that he doesn't notice? No, the kind of of get ready that we ought to have with our relationship with Christ looks like our behaviors being modified by love in the sense where we get to worship a king who has given us security and safety already, where we get to delight in a king who delights in us where we get to mirror the kind of generosity, grace, kindness, and patience that he has extended to us. How much different is that kind of getting ready than the kind of getting ready that looks like living in fear? See, that sounds a whole lot more like life to me than living in fear of punishment. As the great theologians in Switchfoot wrote, we were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? 
I think we often lose ourselves to fear by projecting our own limitations to love well and by placing those on God. See, God's, God's love, it's, it's endless and it is boundless. I want you to read this with me. Uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul writes, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes our own feeble attempts to wriggle ourselves out of God's love by convincing ourselves that we need to prove ourselves. If you're, if you're wrestling with this God thing, if this is something that you're still trying to figure out and check out, I want you to know that you're invited into this kind of love, where love is extended to you, not because you did anything, but because God loves you. Your sins, your, your flaws and failings, past, present, and future, none of those, A, surprise God, or B, deter him from loving you. He has taken care of those on the cross. And so I want to say, if you're, if you're noticing that anger or fear are starting to take hold and take control, uh, allow God's love to transform your posture to reflect the love that you've been extended in Christ. It's the kind of love that requires acknowledging that he died on the cross for your sins and extended reconciliation and forgiveness when you didn't deserve it. So God transforms our position. He transforms our affections, and he also transforms our posture. And, and finally, in my last point here, God's love transforms how we love. There's a, there's a necessary otherness, orientation that comes from God's love and being transformed by God's love. Read this last verse in our passage for today. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. So we need to look at the way that God loves us in order to inform the way that we love one another. And since we've talked about how God's love transforms these, our position, our affections, and our posture, now how do we reflect that? There's, a, there's an author named Kevin Van Hooser, and he wrote this big old theology book called The Drama of Doctrine. And he uses this really incredible metaphor for the church, where he sees the church as the theater for the gospel to be played out, and that everybody in the church are the actors that are part of this theodrama where God is redeeming all things in Christ Jesus. And he actually writes an entire section on what he calls the prosaic spectacles of love. And yes, I had to look up the word prosaic, absolutely. It just means dull, uninteresting, commonplace. And what I think he's really getting at here, because it's a cool thing to think about, dull, uninteresting, commonplace spectacles of love. And what I think he's really getting at here is that these, radical, these are radical expressions of love that need to become so ingrained, so embedded, and frequently practiced that they are common or prosaic in the way that we operate. 
And so the first boring spectacle of love that he talks about is exhibiting reconciliation. He calls it the drama's end. And reconciliation is just, it's achieving communion between entities that were once enemies. So he, here's, this, here's this passage from his book, The Drama of Doctrine, where he talks about this. As a theater of reconciliation, the church both proclaims what God has done in Christ and practices what it preaches. The church does not have to achieve reconciliation so much as display and exhibit the reconciliation already achieved through the death of Christ. It is as a company, think once again, like a play, like we're the company, okay? It is as a company of the gospel and a theater of reconciliation that the church exhibit the new reality in Christ. The church must be an agent of shalom or an agent of peace, not simply for working for a cessation of hostilities, but towards a restoration of friendly relations, the church strives to model social and ethic and racial reconciliation, not primarily because society considers it moral, but in order to correspond to the contours of the new creation. The Bible talks about this very thing in this, what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Last few weeks, you've heard uh, these guys get up here and talk about how we're in this stage of the already, but not, but not yet, where Christ has established his kingdom, but it hasn't been fully realized quite yet in Christ's second coming, where all things will be reconciled to him. All things broken and imperfect, hurtful, sorrowful, painful will be abolished entirely and made right in Christ. We need that kind of reconciliation. And this is our place of longing and wanting. Reconciliation work is God's work and that work has been done through Christ's death and resurrection. And our role to play is to live in that reality that we have been reconciled and take action that aligns to that kind of work. To love in a way that reflects biblical love is to display and exhibit the reconciliation that has already been achieved in the death of Christ. What do you think we would happen if we started to live in a fashion where the depth of our reconciliation is then mirrored to the world around us? Like, how would your sense of security start to change knowing that you have been reconciled to God, mighty God, creator and sustainer of all things? Like, how would your sense of self-image start to change because you have been reconciled and loved by the eternal Father? 
Or how would your relationships start to change being in communion with the Prince of Peace? See, reconciliation work is God's work, and we get to mirror God's love to others by reflecting the person that we have been reconciled to. The the second prosaic spectacle of love that that Van Hooser guy uh, calls it is practicing forgiveness. The drama's recurring theme, because this is something that we see God doing over and over and over again, is forgive. And so, so here's what he says about forgiveness. The church is to embody forgiveness by cultivating certain habits and practices that give its martyrdom a distinct and specific form. By learning to forgive others, the church not only performs the doctrine of atonement, but actually participates as witnesses and as signs in the triune life of God as self-giving love. Those who make up the company of the gospel cannot keep company with the crucified one for long without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity. Forgiving others should become a theodramatic habit that defines the Christian player in the theater of the gospel. The doctrine of atonement shapes our imaginations to help us see others in the body of Christ as forgiven too. It may be an exaggeration to say that God is in the business of forgiveness, but it is no exaggeration to view the Christian's vocation as a peacemaker And one can make peace with one's enemies only by forgiving them. See, John John shows us that part of God's expression of love is by atoning for our sins. Like he stepped in. He forgave us. A fundamental element of loving others in the way that God loved us is through forgiveness. And I think Van Hooser, he really wrote something kind of profound here in acknowledging that it is a practice and a habit to forgive. Like there's a a sense of exercising to this. There's even other philosophers who agree that this is not part of our human nature. I mean, Charles Darwin and Nietzsche, both of them, They both believe that the ultimate truth about the world is going to be conflict and struggle and violence, and that it's only the strong ones who bring bring justice, and it's the weak ones who forgive. But those who know God and have been forgiven by God know that real forgiveness exists. And this is the kind of knowledge that involves more than just intellectual acknowledgement. Because that's when John writes, the one who does not love does not know God. And in the same way, those who do not forgive do not know God because God is made known in Christ and in Scripture. And he is the God who forgives. So to display God's love... We must practice the art of forgiveness, and we must practice it so regularly that it becomes a habit, and then it becomes one of those ordinary, dull, commonplace, prosaic spectacles of love.
And without God, we don't have this superhuman ability to be able to do this, to be able to forgive our enemies. And so we as the church, we witness to you our knowledge of God and our received love of God by practicing forgiveness. So friends, in in this season of Advent, let the love of God take center stage in your hearts. Jesus came to earth fulfilling the longing and waiting of the Jews. And while we have been reconciled to God who is is love and showed it through the sending of his son, would you also allow this to be a season where his love transforms us in the season of longing and waiting for his second coming? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.